When you think about the Holy Spirit in your life, do you believe he's there to comfort you in sadness, empower you to fulfill God's expectations, and provoke you to do better? Some of that is right. Some of that is wrong. Let's look at the real role of the Holy Spirit. This is the Shut Up Devil Show, and I'm Kyle Winkler, author of the book, Shut Up Devil, creator of that Shut Up Devil app. I'm all about shutting down the lies and the struggles that keep you from thriving in God's design for your life. I'm here to do it every single week with a live online audience. I'd love for you to join us all live sometime on Thursdays at 8 p.m. Central at kylewinkler.org slash live. So I was on my way home from the grocery store, and as I approached what I believe is the world's longest traffic light. You got any of those in your town? We got a few of those here in Orlando. The world's longest traffic light I got up to. I was tempted to speed through the yellow light before it turned red. I know none of you do that. That's probably just me, right? This time, though, I played it safe. Just 15 seconds later, I was glad I did because the hood of an all-white SUV with cherries on top greeted me in my rearview mirror. Thankfully, they weren't flashing. While I sat at the light for like five minutes, I continued to glance back into my mirror, back and forth. And the officer kept typing on his computer and then talking into his shoulder walkie-talkie thing and then typing and talking and typing and talking. I wondered what he was doing, but I wasn't too worried that it was anything about me. I wasn't speeding. I wasn't texting. I didn't run the light. But when the light changed, he continued to follow me closely. As I turned, he turned again and again and again. And this went on for like five minutes. I mean, he was tailgating me. Five minutes seems forever when you're being closely followed by an officer. Well, as he continued to follow, I started to grow insecure in my ability to drive. (laughs) My heart rate increased. My mind raced to what could be wrong. Why is he following me so closely? I went through a checklist of possibilities. Is my tag expired? Is my brake light out? Is there an unpaid toll on my record? I didn't think the first two could be issues, but that last one, the toll, that could be something in Central Florida land of the toll roads. (laughs) That's a real possibility around here. Thankfully, at an intersection a half mile from my house, we parted ways. I went straight. He went right, I think. My heart rate returned to normal. My mind was put back at ease. Now, of course, I don't know the officer's intentions. Maybe his route really was 90% the same as mine. Whatever the case, like a good preacher, I got a few lessons from the experience. First, the constant scrutiny, even if it was only in my mind, was counterproductive to safe driving. The pressure of keeping the right speed and maintaining the right distance and all the other rules of driving not only weakened my senses, my heart rate alone was enough to keep me from thinking clearly. Secondly, I realized that I was more concerned with what I could be doing wrong than with the road and the other drivers. So if this continued, it's inevitable that I would have made a mistake. But lastly, I recognize that this officer is exactly how many people envision God's presence in their lives. They see him as a cosmic sin police waiting to catch and correct their every mistake. And that's sad because it contradicts everything that Jesus said 
and did. Now, I know I have to build my case for this. So let me first take you to crucifixion day. Most in the crowd around the cross considered Jesus in good company dangling between the other two rebels there. Nobody protested as soldiers spat on him, beat him with rods, or whipped him with ropes of shrapnel, or pressed inch-long thorns into his forehead. People shouted slurs as spikes spliced through his hands and feet. Now, when you think about all the cruelty that Jesus suffered on that day, be mindful that he didn't endure any of it accidentally. Jesus knew his fate before he came to earth. In order to satisfy God's justice and forgive sin once and for all, he willingly offered himself to be filleted like a sacrificial lamb. He chose to be there, dying for those who put him there. What love? No greater love has the earth ever seen. After six hours on the cross, Jesus mustered up the strength and breath for one final declaration. It is finished, he announced from the cross, confirming that his mission was accomplished. If people had any questions as to what that mission was, what happened next gave the answer. Look at Matthew 27, verse 51. It says, At the moment that he died, the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Why was this significant? Because for many years, the temple was the location where sacrifices were carried out according to the law of Moses. In the temple, a curtain separated God's presence from the people. It was the constant reminder that sin separates God and humans. But this all changed on crucifixion day. Through Jesus' sacrifice, God and sinners, the perfect and the imperfect, were reconciled and put at peace with each other. The torn temple curtain was a profound symbol of that. Now, though crucifixion day was not what Jesus' followers envisioned for him, they shouldn't have been surprised. He spoke about his leaving pretty often, even though they didn't understand much of what he said, but I guess they didn't understand much of what he said about anything else for that matter. Everything about his ministry perplexed them, it seems, from the people he touched to the people he talked to, to the idea that God and sinners could even dwell together. Giving himself up to be killed, though, that was inconceivable. As was his claim that it would benefit everyone for him to do so. I think part of the reason why they didn't understand all his talk about his death is because they didn't want to. So they grew quiet when he talked about it. Have you ever done that when conversations come up that you don't want to face? I remember a time when a close friend considered leaving his job and moving he and his family states away. And I say we were close because we were. I mean, I was at their house for dinner almost every night of the week. I vacationed with them. So I feared what life would be like if they moved. So since I didn't want to entertain the idea that they might leave, I did my best to ignore any discussion. And if I couldn't do that, I resorted to some of my best spiritual manipulation tactics, you know, the things that sound like 
God said or God told me. At my worst, I attempted to program my friend's phone to say Holy Ghost when I texted him. It was a joke, but I wanted to make it look like God had texted, don't move. But I made a typo in the process because my text ended up coming from the Holy Goat. The joke was on me. Anyway, back to Jesus here. The disciples didn't want to think about him leaving. Life with Jesus was strange. Yes, it had its confusing moments, sure. But it was also thrilling and promising. Who would want to go back to the way things were? But Jesus never promised to go back to the way things were. No, he promised that when he died, he would send a helper, which he called the Holy Spirit. Now, the idea of the Holy Spirit wasn't all that foreign to them. In Israel's history, God's Spirit was known to rest upon people like judges and prophets and warriors and give them supernatural power. They had a prophecy that one day God's Spirit would rest on all people, would be poured out on all people. But Jesus said the Holy Spirit wouldn't just rest on people temporarily, but would live inside of and remain with them. Now that was different. And he described God's Spirit in a way they had never heard. Let's go to John 14, verse 26. You'll see what Jesus says here. But when the Father sends the Advocate as my representative, that is the Holy Spirit, do you see what Jesus said there? He called the Father his Advocate, or our Advocate. I want to pause there for you to just consider that word advocate. What comes to your mind? Someone campaigning for a cause, advocating, standing up for what's right? Those only scratch the surface of what Jesus meant. He used the Greek word paraclete, which throughout the New Testament is translated as advocate, but also helper and counselor. But not a counselor in the sense of a therapist. That's what I thought for years. Like a sober, based, straight-talking therapist. No. A counselor in the sense of legal counsel. Back then, a paraclete was a defense attorney. Now think about that. Ever needed a defense attorney? I hope not. But if you have, or maybe you've seen one on TV, you know that they are there to defend their clients against wrongdoing. Sure. A defense attorney might know incriminating facts about their client, but they will never bring them up. They will never offer evidence that supports any accusation or charges against them. The defense attorney's sole responsibility is to plead their client's innocence. So when Jesus said, the Father will send the advocate as my representative, He meant that God's Spirit will remain alongside and inside believers to prove their innocence. And he said he'll do it in a way that represents Jesus. The Holy Spirit is an extension of Jesus' character. This is why Jesus said it's better for him to depart. In the flesh, he was limited to one place at one time. In the Spirit, he could be everywhere and at all times. That's better. Last week in my message, what did Jesus do? We saw some examples of his character based on how he interacted with people. He never condemned, 
He never shamed. He never belittled any strugglers. Sure, he could be firm at times, but only as he confronted the follies of legalists and the scams of religious opportunists. With everyone else, though, he never acted as the sin police waiting to catch people in a mistake. No. He went out of his way to touch the untouchables, to speak to the unspeakables, to forgive the unforgivables, to offer the fallen, the broken, and the burdened a hand up and a way out. Look at Acts 10, verse 38. This summarizes Jesus' entire time on earth. It says he went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Shortly after Jesus' ascension to heaven, the Holy Spirit came down just as he promised. The book of Acts tells the surprising supernatural stories of how people from every nation, tribe, and tongue received the Spirit. And he has never left, and he has never stopped. Today, he continues to swirl around all of us and make his home inside of every believer. The Holy Spirit is with us now as Jesus was then amid chaos, turbulence, and imperfection as our advocate. Now, though we still don't understand everything that he does, one thing is certain. Advocates don't beat people up, they help them up. Now, I said that one time on my social media, and it sparked a theological firestorm in the comments. I had no idea how polarizing it is to believe that the Holy Spirit doesn't beat people up. But, 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 I heard again. People like to show me their butts for some reason. But, but, but. Most of the criticism sounded like, but he hates sin. But he disciplines us. I've learned that the thinking of many Christians is so warped by religion that they don't feel right unless they feel wrong. Undeniably, the Holy Spirit addresses sin. But not in the ways that most people think. As Jesus' representative, the Spirit addresses sin like he did, which is to offer himself as the answer to it. And he does it a little bit differently on unbelievers and believers. I'm going to show you here. In John 16, verse 8, look at this. Jesus says when the advocate comes, he will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. Now that right there makes a lot of the angry street corner sign wavers love that line. I mean, they think they advocate for the advocate by naming sins in black marker from which to turn or burn. But Jesus had more to say on the subject. In his next breath, he named the sin. And it was just one. The world's sin is that it refuses to believe in me, he said. You see, rather than specific sins, Jesus described that unbelief is what the Holy Spirit addresses with those in the world. The reason goes back to John the Baptist's prophecy, which I've mentioned in the last several messages. Remember it from John 1.29? 
When he saw Jesus at his baptism, he declared, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, on the cross, Jesus announced, It is finished. Like that mission to take away the sin of the world was done with his sacrifice. Then in 2 Corinthians 5.19, the Apostle Paul expounded upon what all that meant by saying that the cross was the moment when God stopped counting people's sins against them. I know this might be challenging to receive, and it might fly in the face of what a lot of us have been taught for a while, but part of the wonder and good news of what Jesus accomplished is that individual sins no longer separate God and people. Remember the point of the torn curtain? This means that the Holy Spirit is not concerned with naming individual sins or managing them. Because after all, if stopping sin is a prerequisite for salvation, we'd all remain hopeless. Let's just get honest here. None of us are perfect at the point of salvation, and none of us are perfect revelation after salvation. So since God knows that it is impossible for humans to have sinless perfection this side of eternity, he sent Jesus to end the problem of sin for us. Belief in Jesus and what he did, not the absence of sin, is what secures someone's salvation and eternal destiny with God. The Holy Spirit works consistently on unbelievers to show them that. He's always pointing to Jesus as the answer, and he does it in the same way that Jesus did while he was here on earth, through unfailing love. Now, one of the greatest privileges of we believers is that God often uses us to reveal the message of Jesus to the world. For at least the first 10 years of my faith, I thought my part in that was to help people live worthy of the message. To clean them up and fix them up. That's what I call my holiness police days. The beginning of the end of these days came when I asked the Lord how to minister to some guys at the gym. I was just so sure they were in some grave sin that surely God wanted them out of quickly. God broke through my self-righteous burden with a single suggestion. He said, Kyle, instead of looking for what the devil might be doing in their lives, look for what I'm doing, then come alongside of that. Mind blown. That was a huge paradigm shift for me. Back then, I never considered that the Holy Spirit works 24-7 on unbelievers to woo them to Him in ways that I can't detect. But that's just what Jesus promised. Last week, we looked at the Samaritan woman at the well. I explore this story quite a bit in chapter 7 of my book, Shut Up Devil. But like Jesus did with her, he does with everyone in the world. He meets unbelievers where they are and not with a sign that says, turn or burn. He comes with signs that affirm, I made you. I love you. I want you in my family forever. Sometimes those signs are words. Sometimes they are actions. Sometimes they are miracles. Regardless of how they appear, the Apostle Paul said in Romans 2.4, that it is the kindness of God that draws people to Him. 
learn the lesson that I did with my friend who was on the verge of moving. When you attempt to speak for the Holy Spirit with don'ts or threats, you only end up proving yourself to be more like the Holy Ghost. You expend a lot of energy and get nowhere with no one. Let yourself off the hook to fix people. Simply allow God's love to speak through you. And that could sound just as plain as telling somebody God loves you. I mean, your confirmation of that is sure to complement the way that he's already at work in their life, even if you can't see it. Okay. Most Christians would agree in theory that God's love is the most effective agent for change, not only for unbelievers, but also for we believers. What we do and say, though, in practice, often doesn't agree. Many Christians and churches take pride in how they love sinners. And many do really love them well and as unconditionally as humanly possible. But I've noticed something. I've noticed that the love changes when someone says yes to Jesus. I mean, it's like another miracle of water into wine almost. It seems like people just think that after somebody says a prayer and says yes to Jesus, then God just transforms his love from unconditional to tough love. If there were no requirements to obtain salvation, now suddenly there are a thousand and one requirements to maintain it. But don't worry, we say. While we kind of pat the new believer on the back and send them on the way. You have the Holy Spirit to help you live up to what God expects. I don't mean to be cynical. Forgive me if I sound that way. Of course, the Holy Spirit who lives in us provides strength. Yes, He helps us in our weakness. But why do so many Christians in whom the Holy Spirit dwells still live stressed, frustrated, and question their salvation? It's because they feel they don't meet the expectations placed upon them. Some fear there's something wrong with them. Some fear there's something wrong with God. The truth has nothing to do with anything that they or God lack. The truth is that the Holy Spirit does not help believers meet God's expectations, but rather as the advocate, he reminds believers that Jesus met God's expectations for them. Please hear me. You have to hear me. The Holy Spirit will never argue why you disappointed or failed God. He will never threaten punishment or provoke fear of God's retaliation. That's the accuser. The advocate, as a defense attorney, like a defense attorney, the Holy Spirit is here to offer evidence of your innocence, which he doesn't have to hunt to find. He doesn't rest his case upon how much money you gave to the church or how many scriptures you have memorized or if you cried enough to prove your sorrow. No, when it comes to your standing with God because of any past or present sin, the Holy Spirit rests his case on Jesus who did the work necessary to forgive you and make you right. When Jesus spoke to his disciples about the advocate, he revealed to them what he sounds like. Again, John 14, 26. But when the Father sends the advocate as my representative, he will teach you everything and will remind you of everything I have told you. The Holy Spirit sounds like Jesus. And the Spirit came 
to remind them of the cross and what it means. And he's still here with us doing the same. Today, the Holy Spirit sounds like the voice of Jesus and his revelation given to the New Testament writers to defend you from the fear of punishment. He might sound like Jesus on the cross. It is finished. To protect you from shame and striving, he might sound like his words through the Apostle Paul and Romans 3.28, so we are made right with God by faith and not by works. Certainly when you fall, just like Jesus, the Holy Spirit will uplift and empower you with God loves you. But Kyle, God disciplines those he loves. Yeah, Scripture does say that, Hebrews 12.6. But if I might add my own but, our idea of discipline is skewed by our experience, skewed by our broken world. A lot of people hear discipline and they think of their dad's belt clearing his belt loops or a verbal beat down from their mama or worse. But the Greek word for discipline in that verse was never intended to provoke fear in people because it's not about punishment. It simply means to train or educate. Look at how Jesus concluded his promise about the advocate in John 16, 13 through 15. He said, when the Spirit comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will tell you about the future. In other words, the Holy Spirit will train and educate. In this role, think of the Holy Spirit like a mentor, not a drill sergeant. Mentors are invited into the lives of people to help them navigate their present and future from the benefit of experience and objectivity mentors offer suggestions and sometimes words of caution or correction sometimes those hurt our pride but it's never shaming because we know they have our best interests in mind well the holy spirit is your greatest most trustworthy mentor because he knows your future completely. He knows you. He knows what makes you the most effective and what steals your strength. He sees what's coming and he will guide and empower you to make whatever adjustments help you avoid danger and ensure success. Sure, his voice might sound challenging at times, but it's never condemning, belittling, mocking, or frustrated. If there is something that God wants you to do or somewhere he wants you to go, he will love you to it while he walks you through it. Remember, the Holy Spirit is God on your side, at your side, and inside of you to defend, encourage, empower, teach, and guide. Anything that sounds other than that, that makes you feel shame, condemn, or hopeless? That's not the advocate. That's the accuser. Now, I've narrowed down 10 specific phrases that people often mistake for the advocate when really they are from the accuser. And these phrases result in about every emotional and psychological battle you can think of, from insecurity, anxiety, depression, fear, you name it. And that's why I wrote my book, Shut Up Devil, Silencing the Ten Lies Behind Every Battle You Face. One of the things the accuser will 
point to is the reality of some sin in your life and say, see, you are still a horrible sinner. Or he'll point to some tragedy or trauma or trial in your life and say, see, God's punishing you. Well, do you know how to combat those lies when he says them? I show you in the book, along with eight other lies like them. You can get Shut Up Devil in paperback, ebook, or audiobook wherever books are sold. Or I'll send you a signed copy if you order it on my website at kylewinkler.org slash shutupdevil. That's kylewinkler.org slash shutupdevil. Okay, that does it for the Shut Up Devil show. Remember, God is good and He is for you, and we're here for you too every week on my website at kylewinkler.org on our podcast or wherever you get your social media. And don't forget wherever you're watching or listening to tap that subscribe or follow button so that you never miss a show. See you next time.